you can be in control and guide public opinion for your business to be able to expand in a safer zone. You can do that. Companies don't know that. It's been my mission ever since being in crisis management, seeing the other side of the coin and realizing that if you can do something for the negative, right? If you can take public opinion and slander it for a company to keep them out of business, well, the corollary holds true. And you can proactively use public opinion to grow and expand and protect your company. And that's been my mission ever since I started in crisis management. Just stop it. The -the run-of-the-mill cheesy humdrum bullshit status quo just tires me out. What fascinates me are the industry disruptors, the superhuman frontiersmen or women with errors in their backs who go through hell to achieve their goals. They'll go through anything to make it. They bathe in hell and high water, a cut above. They're intolerant to mediocrity, the status quo, and yet they're the nicest people you'll ever meet. This is Disruption Interruption. Join me as we meet and learn from those mavericks, rebels, and business leaders that aren't afraid to piss off the establishment in order to make radical change for good. This show is sponsored by Johto PR, the disruptive anti-PR firm that murders your competition with cinder blocks and cyanide. Welcome back, everybody, to Disruption Interruption. I'm your guest host, Becca, and we're here today to talk to the queen of disruption at a company that constantly breaks through the status quo, helping businesses across the nation become thought leaders in their own markets and turbocharging their growth. She always wanted to be a dancer, but life had other ideas. And thankfully for that, because her groundbreaking approach to PR is revolutionizing results and finally bringing measurement and accountability to the PR industry. We're talking to her today about what is wrong with the PR industry for B2B companies and what should be done differently so growing companies can achieve thought leader status and most importantly, get measurable results. Welcome Carla Jo Helms, Chief Evangelist and Anti-PR Strategist at Johto PR Disruptors. How are you today, Carla? Hi, Becca. I'm good. You're turning the tables on me. I am. You are always in the moderator seat and have showcased so many people on this podcast with their amazing ideas. But little do people maybe know that you are absolutely a disruptor yourself. And we really wanted to talk about that today. Well, I hope I don't disappoint. <laughs> you you definitely, <laughs> you definitely won't. I know we're going to talk about the status quo. We're going to talk about the good, the bad, the ugly. I think you say this in every episode, maybe what needs to be changed. But every disruptor has something that really pushes them, that brought them to this place and that they think about that bothers them every day that they're trying to change. What is that for you? Oh my gosh. That is, I am a contrarian. What is commonly believed to be true many times is not true. Mm. And that is, I think the human frailty of mankind is that we continue to do things and accept things just blindly that everyone knows to be true, but it actually is not working. And that's a perspective that I was trained to look at at an early age, right? Some things that we obviously know to be true is true, but there are things that are perpetuating situations that people just accept blindly and don't even inspect or look. And that's my main ingredient. I see that so often. 
you go through life and especially if you would move to different places, I think, you know, as a kid, I moved to a lot of different places and being in a new place, you're like, wait a minute, why are you doing things that way? That's so interesting because I didn't move a lot of places, but I went to a lot of different schools. My dad was, you know, he had an MBA from an engineering university. So he was very logical in his thinking and very much wanted me to get the best education, my sister and I. So putting us in the best schools and transferring us when our GPAs were not high enough to his expectation, right? I mean, he he started calculating our GPAs from the time we were five. I don't even know how he did that. I remember seeing that one day, like this ledger. I'm like, what is this? (laughs) But it gave me a different perspective because I was always around different types of people. A lot of those were, you know, ecclesiastical schools, right? Like religious backgrounds. They weren't secular, but they had great education, right? So I was around different types of people. I was also in the public school district. I was like so many different types of races and people with different creeds. And I always looked at things like, okay, why are they doing that? Like they didn't do that over here or why is this going on? And you don't really see that. I don't think if you don't have exposure to different locations or people. Mm -hmm. And I know like as a kid, I'm sure that sometimes it can be hard to be the contrarian as a child, but then you grow up and you get into these situations where you're looking at businesses and you're saying, why are you doing that way? And tell me about how you like that has evolved now in your work. I will acknowledge you at first about being a kid and seeing that it's hard to be a contrarian because you don't want to speak up. Mm -hmm. And you realize when you start asking questions when you're younger and adults don't want to answer, don't like the questions that you realize it's not okay to ask. Mm. But fortunately, I got into a career where I could ask questions, that I was given the license to ask questions. And I really learned this from some of the best litigators, crisis management PRs in the country. And it made me less shy. And then it really started to get me to look at theologics and things. Let's jump into that. I mean, you, your background is in crisis management and now you're doing PR. What's the difference? Crisis management is PR. It's the need plus ultra of PR. It's public relations that went awry. Somebody screwed up, somebody messed up and it created a very upset group of people. Mm -hmm. And that upset group of people is not just one person. You know, there is a stimulative effect when you have a group because people act differently one-on-one. But when you put them into a group, there is this stimulation effect. One thing, it's like a vibration effect. One thing affects another, affects another. And then people act like they would not act on their own. And so you have to then manage that And it's not always logical. I mean, you've heard of group think Mm -hmm. and things like that. I mean, people can be mad, but sometimes you get a group together and then you have a mob, right? Mm -hmm. So it really is sorting out what is the reactive and what is the true thing that needs to be handled and how fast do you need to do that before the contagion of upset gets out of hand? So it becomes mathematical and part psychological. And things that persist tend to have lies connected to them. 
when you actually find the truth to something, it things dissipate, even if it's really bad news. People kind of go, oh, that's what happened. Mm. Right. And then you can just look at that in your own life. Right. Like you had a personal relationship with someone and, you know, something wasn't going right. You couldn't put your finger on it. They were lying to you. Like it just kept persisting, 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 even though you had tons of conversations, it was never getting handled. And then later on, you find out what was really going on. Everybody's had that happen to them. Right. And all Mm -hmm. of a sudden there's almost like maybe there's like betrayal in her, but there's almost like this little tiny little inner peace. Like, oh, I finally got the answer. Have you ever experienced that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Not for myself, but like I've seen it play out. Yeah. I mean, it's not, Mm -hmm. listen, things that happen to people don't just happen to them personally. It happens to their friends. It happens to other people that they see. There's all sorts of different flows in life where things happen, Mm -hmm. where people experience things, right? But, you know, once people get the true answers to something, they can actually go on. They can actually handle it and go on, typically, right? Mm -hmm. And so you really look for what is persisting and why and trace that down to find the answer that will open the door to a resolution with public opinion. That's really all crisis management is. Get to the truth of it. I mean, it just... It reminds me so much of all the different public scandals we've had over all the years. And it's exactly what you're saying. Somebody isn't telling the full truth and the public doesn't accept it. They're like, uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. And so it's just like, keep cycling and it keeps cycling and it keeps cycling. And then finally, when they're like, no, fine, you're right. Like, yes, you're right. And then it goes away and forget about it, right? Mm-hmm. The best crisis management campaign is one that people can't remember. I remember thinking about that from just like, you know, as a person who worked in a SaaS software company and, you know, you talk about potential emergencies and one of the potential emergencies is like your software goes down and what are you going to do? And some companies try to hide it and others are very open about it. And they, they immediately will start tweeting and say, we're down, like we're working on it, giving updates. And it seems like as scary as that is, it blows over faster to be more honest. Yes, that's a great example of that principle in place. Mm-hmm. Like a really good example. And it takes a lot of guts to communicate the truth. And you can't always communicate the whole truth because not everybody can handle it. Mm-hmm. You know, it has to be an acceptable truth to the groups that you're working with. And most people will go, no, I want the full truth, right? But they may not understand it. There's terminology they don't understand. There's ramifications they don't understand. That's where PR really comes into play. What's the audience that you're speaking to? What's the truth that will help them, right? And then you can, you know, bring them to an understanding and fix the situation for the company, Mm -hmm. right? PR is not just covering things up right? You have to actually work to fix the problem and shore it up so it doesn't happen in the future. And that involves many stakeholders. But what we're talking about right now, like this is your background, crisis management. So you're saying it's, mm-hmm. there's math, there's science, it's quantifiable. I love that. But it feels backwards to what you're doing today, right? Like now you're saying, I'm taking companies that are unknown in their market or not known enough. And I am turning them into these thought leaders that Everyone in their market knows them and they have all this brand recognition. How do you do that when like, what's the difference there? Because on the crisis management side, like tell the truth, it goes away. But you don't want these 
brands to go away. So how does that work? <laughs> yes. Well, you know, also the part of crisis management is you make that situation go away, but then you set up a foundation of proactive PR that is a fund of goodwill for them in the future. It's a continuous process because PR is changing people's minds or getting them to think newly and then keeping them thinking the same way. Yeah. So every campaign that I've worked on on a crisis and you never hear about this, but you set them up with a proactive PR campaign that allows them to create so much goodwill, publicize their good works, you know, show the solutions that they actually solve on an ongoing basis that really ends up lowering their costs of doing business like litigation and, you know, things like that. So when people love a brand and there is a skirmish or a breach or an upset or something, it blows over even more quickly because now you have people that know and like you and trust you. And they're sort of like, oh, they made a mistake. Poor guys, we, we still like them. And so one thing I noticed in doing an analysis of all the crisis campaigns is it wasn't what I thought it was. It wasn't that the companies really had some issue in their operations or they had some bad guy or you know something happened or you know most all the time it's a competitor that brings a libel or slander suit against a smaller scrappy, innovative startup to keep them from being able to compete. And so I thought, well, maybe, I mean, this is the cutthroat world of crisis management and PR, but I thought maybe that was the common denominator of all of these. It really wasn't. Every company that I've worked with were expanding fast, were taking over market share, had a really good purpose towards the greater good, were innovating something, but they had no protection in the court of public opinion. Like they were growing to their very immediate prospects and so forth. But those that influence their prospects and the media and the influencers around them were not made friendlies, mm. as we call them. Yeah, by focusing on like the day-to-day of just like lead gen, lead gen, sales, sales, they were influencing their bottom line. They were growing really rapidly. They were, you know finding these customers that really resonated with what they were trying to sell. But you're saying that they lacked a broader safety net. They lacked a broader safety net. And so PR was not there to do its job, which is really to help make that safety net really strong. So expansion is very easy. So they were actually vulnerable to attack and they didn't even know it. It's almost like you feel too big to fail or you're, you're growing so fast, you're going so rapidly, and it's like everything is up, 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 that you think you're too great to fail. But that's the frailty of this particular world is that you become a target Mm -hmm. and there's going to be a target on you. So most companies don't know how to shore that up. A lot of public companies do. They're so fanatical about it. 30% of the entire market cap is based off of goodwill. Goodwill is done through public relations. That's why public companies are fanatical about how many press releases they put out, right? And how much publicity they get and how much brand awareness they have about how good they are, right? Mm -hmm. Government regimes do the same thing. But most other companies don't know that the court of public opinion is a guided and controlled system that businesses can use for good. That's really the truth of it. So you take these companies that are little or unknown, and it's not about, 
oh, I just love communicating. Look how great I am. And I just got this particular round of funding. And, you know, we're so awesome. It's creating a narrative for them that really shows what they're solving and making better for people, the harm that they're solving, the the economic issues, the money, right? Even controversies, right? And educating people and making them to be such good guys that it's really hard to attack them. Yeah. So a company says, okay, good. I need some PR. I want a safety net. They go out and they find some old random PR firm. What's their experience? Well, unfortunately, and I say this unfortunately because number one, it's the industry I am. And number two, oh, the irony. But they end up not getting the results that they wanted and they end up hating PR. And I think PRs are like the hardest working people of any profession. I mean, it is a fast paced deadline of yesterday, persona non grata, (laughs) like sort of job. They just don't have the knowledge or the strategy. Like it's almost like a lost tech on the proactive side of it, of how you really guide and control public opinion. It almost becomes, I just love to communicate. So let's communicate this story. And it becomes like bright idea-itis. And it's not hitting upon the human emotion and reaction issues that's causing friction from getting a client's product service accept it. They come to you then after having tried PR in the past and they say, Carla Joe, I, I hate PR. And I say, I hate PR too, <laughs> which I do. <laughs> I like the antithesis of that. And the antithesis of that is really knowing how big your target audience is, right? Mm. What are the barriers to entry of being able to convince them to change their mind and using that as a multiple Because that's like, okay, so you have a million people. I'm just picking a round number. And there's five major barriers to entry. So let's multiply that by five. I'm really like simplifying this, right? And then you add in who are the influencers and how big are those audiences that affect your million people? Oh, it could be government regulators. Oh, it could be banking institutions. Oh, it could be the actual consumers for the B2B market, right? And how big is that? And you look at those numbers and you add that to the entire number. And then you add in the law of familiarity, which is like they have one person has to see something 20 or 50 times to make that brand resonate and remember them. And you come up with this astronomical number. It's almost like people go into apathy, you know, in my industry, if they took a look at that, like, how are we going to do this? Right. But that's where the tools of crisis management comes in and you break that down into bite-sized pieces and finding opinion leaders that reach multiples of those people at a time, right? And so then you create a strategy using those opinion leader channels to then get your message out and your story out that says you're great. This is what you solved, you know, all of that while you're busy focusing on marketing and sales. So it's warming up the markets, getting people to change their minds, and you do it on a systematic basis and based on budget, timeline, and so forth to get to your goals, you know how many people you have to reach in six months, how many people you have to reach in a year, how many people you have to reach in two years, you know, things like that. Of course, in crisis management, it's very accelerated, but 
the same methodology still applies to an unknown company or a company that's relatively unknown. I would expect that accelerated in transformation also means expensive. Very. And, <laughs> and so if you are proactive, you're like what I'm hearing from you is like, if you're proactive and you're doing this as a proactive approach, it's more of a long-term strategy for being known and it becomes affordable because you're taking it off in these bite-sized chunks, but it's still very measurable. Exactly. And I did this great market research commission on cross-section majority of 5,000 CEOs of tech companies that used PR. And this is, you know, after years of hearing how much people hated PR, I decided to commission this study and I learned why they hated it. But I also learned how they used it and they used it exactly for what you said. It was a longer term proposition. It was done to differentiate themselves and it was done to supplement their marketing and sales to make people more interested and comfortable in doing business with them. And that was like a revelation for me because that is how PR is supposed to be done. And it told me that they intrinsically knew the natural laws of communication and PR and what is it supposed to do. And despite them hating it and seeing it as a necessary evil, that's really the ideal scene that they wanted. And Mm -hmm. that's how I started my agency. And I realized how smart these CEOs and visionaries are because even though they may not be getting those results or that's not what they're told that this is how PR is you know, done for them, they realized by their own trial and error that this is really how it works. Yeah, but they still come away disliking the process. I mean, I can, I can understand that. And I can kind of feel that myself as someone who ran marketing, oversaw PR, worked with an agency, and dealt with things where it was like, the agency would say to us, all right, guys, like, you gotta tell us what's newsworthy. No, that's not newsworthy enough. No, that's not newsworthy enough. And, you know, we'd be like, why are we doing your job? Yeah, you know, that's so passive. So uncollaborative. So you have something, then come tell us. And meanwhile, you know, we're paying this big monthly retainer for what? To be told no. Yeah. And, you know, I think sometimes firms feel like they can't let it go because, oh, my gosh, what if they know something that I don't know or I really need this? But the truth is PR is causative and it is not a lazy like reporting what the status quo is. It is knowing what the news is and then having the ability to pull out the proprietary data that the client has that makes a new news story Mm -hmm. because every client has gobs of proprietary new data that no one has, right? Right. I mean, any company that's succeeding in any way has something that's special about them, right? They have data that no one else has. They have, you know, information and perspective on the industry that no one else has. And if you really know your job, you know that nothing is a silo. Everything is interconnected and interrelated in our economy. And so what makes a big news story is sometimes the trickle-down effect of what that data or that product of that service really has ultimately on the economy, on the consumer, on the investment community, how the world is going to go, the future trends. I mean, the storytelling becomes endless if you know how to relate it to that. And if you know the media formula, I mean, they have a very simple formula, but if you know that and the media's algorithm, then it really just becomes 
using that formula and scaling that algorithm up or down, depending on the volume of press the client wants. Mm -hmm. I know I make it sound so simple. You you do, but but it's not just that, is it? I mean, because isn't there a relationship component as well? There's always a relationship component. And I tell you what, it's almost like, well, it's just like sales. It's fair. It's a technical process of marketing and selling to the media. People don't get that. It has its own rules of engagement. You would understand this as a CMO. You have a particular target audience. They have their likes, their dislikes, the way they like to communicate, the way they like to receive information. You know, you can even know all the way down to the time of day that they want their, you know, information, where they hang out, right? What they're going to reject, mm-hmm, what they're mm-hmm. going to delete. It is no different with the media. It is just a completely different ballgame as far as how you do it. And it's been developed for the past 120 years. And most people don't realize that. So they don't know those techniques. And so they use other techniques or other marketing techniques and they don't know why it's not working. Mm -hmm. Or they run out of budget for the techniques that they have. They run out, well, that ends up happening always. They run out of budget with the techniques that they have. And then you have to really marry marketing and sales with PR. And that's not done enough. Marketing and sales has to amplify and use that third-party credibility to gain more acceptance, close faster, make their content more relative, even expand on the stories that get published to their target audiences with even more key data about why it affects their prospects and their customers. It's a loop that should constantly be used. But too often, just like marketing and sales are in silos mm-hmm. and end up fighting each other, PR is in a completely different silo and it's not utilized with marketing and sales. You have a lot of information about that that you guys provide to people about marketing and sales and PR all working together. What kind of metrics do you tell companies to look for? Like what's success if they do that? Some of them overlap. You know, if you look at marketing ROI, that's one of them. If you have a base of prospects and clients that are more interested and comfortable in doing business with you, your marketing dollars go farther. That is definitely something to track. Your CAC, your customer acquisition cost goes down. The sales time to close speeds up. Educated consumers are much faster and easier to close right? Those are main ones. And then tracking overall business because PR brings so much exposure to the company that marketing and sales can then reap the rewards of, right? And get them to, you know, pull that demand in for interest and for sales. So you look at over time, what is the overall reach into the company. So those are the four main metrics. And then there's smaller metrics, like we call them submetrics or leading indicators that, you know, show that you're moving towards that. Like how many people did we reach? Right? How many people read the articles or saw yeah. the, you know, news stories? Mm-hmm. Right? How many impressions? Right? Impressions actually are very important. But you look at a volume And then you look at a percentage of that to people that were actually exposed by the brand. And as you know, today, there's many attribution points that affect the sale. 
right? Right. But you could take a control factor, which is what we do with many of our clients and track this, but they have a marketing and sales process that's been implemented. It's going, it's great. The visionary comes in and the chief growth strategist comes in or the CEO says, I need to differentiate myself even more. I need to elevate us as a subject matter expertise. So you put the PR machine on top of that and then you can track that and actually show like how the revenues grow as the only control factor that has changed. What kind of results should people expect to see? Oh my gosh, that's all over the board. I mean, you have pie in the sky, (laughs) right? And then you have people that are very, very realistic. You have to look also at the industry and how gluttoned it is Mm. and how hard it is to change. Like the healthcare industry is one of those, right? So that growth rate can be like six to seven times less than the IT industry, right? The IT industry is on the cutting edge or on the bleeding edge. There's a lot of change, even though there's resistance, but there's more acceptance to change, right? Mm -hmm. And so new technologies or things come in. And if you educate right and you do enough of it in the right channels, then you can see the acceptance and the adoption faster. Yeah, same thing with like highly regulated industries like the financial industry, not fintech, right? But those can be a little more slow moving, right? A little more conservative, like the mental viewpoint of the people that you need to change their minds, they don't change their minds as fast. So you put that factor into place when you look at how much publicity a company needs because some people don't change their minds as fast. You know that. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think like you said, every industry has its own unique time frame. You know, some of the industries that you sell into like financial, you know, they're very boys club, let's call it not quite the right word, but you know, it's like if one bank does it, then the other's like, hmm, maybe I'll look at that. But until you get somebody on board, you know, it's really hard to break in. Healthcare can be similar. Where if you, you know, the minute you get a couple hospitals and other hospitals are like, oh, me too, me too. I, I'm going to look at it. We find that has a lot to do with the regulatory environment. Yeah. Is the reticent to change too quickly. Because mm-hmm. we've done a lot of market research on that because really looking at the psychographics of what would cause them to change. And it really has boiled down to the regulatory environments. So that, so then you go, okay, great. Well, let's add that public to our PR campaign, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, something special for them. Yeah, I remember this client that we did a campaign on. You know, these bring up different campaigns that we've done over the years. We've done tons. There was a client, they were part of a subsidiary that was a very big company. And they thought they would just ride on the good name of this company, but they were a small, scrappy startup in the auto industry. And Mm -hmm. they were changing the way people bought cars and, you know, it takes you four hours if you go to a showroom to pick out a car and I mean, for minimum, right. And Mm -hmm. they were able to cut that process down with their fintech service down to an hour. Right. Wow. Believe it. Yeah. Believe it or not, there's a lot of manual paperwork and there's things that you just don't realize that are going on in an industry. Right. Mm -hmm. They were able to bring it down into an hour and, you know, the savings of what that would cost, right? Because these car lots or these car dealerships, they sell these cars and they pull them together and then they send them off to get 
payment. And if they're not able to do that fast enough, right, then they're not seeing the fruits of their labor for 30, 60, 90 days. I mean, it's millions of dollars from these sales, right? And you can do this very quickly and send this off electronically and then you get instant payment, right? Within a week or something like that. I mean, revolutionize That's the industry. great for business. That's fantastic. Great for business. And they couldn't get acceptance, couldn't get acceptance, couldn't get acceptance. So we realized that the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau was now starting to go after banks for discriminatory lending. So if you had a financial department in a particular car dealership that because of this manual process just forgot to ask the man forget if he wanted gap insurance, but then made sure that they asked the woman and the CFPB comes in and does an audit, right? That bank is now on the hook because they're the financial institution that lended the money, right? On the hook for discriminatory lending. Really, it was just a human error mistake. Mm. You know, we took that, really exploited that in the news, but made this company a friend to the regulatory environment. They had spent five years trying to get in front of Wells Fargo, Bank of America, I forget the a third bank, and they were able to line up meetings in two weeks from that campaign starting, and they closed two out of the three banks. Never had happened before. Wow. Right? And that's just, just like a PR launch. Most people can think of PR usually in short spurts, like clean up the problem. It's not always that short, but like a product launch, right? Mm-hmm. Or I want to capitalize on news that just happened in the industry that I can really do something about. It's kind of best to get your feet wet on short spurts, see how it works. And then you start to get the idea, oh, how does this work long-term, right? Mm -hmm. That's just one example. That was such a fun example. We have tons of those. It's incredible to like hear those stories and hear the successes. And I think what struck me the most was just hearing about how long they tried without it, right? Like Marketing and sales. And they were not dumb marketing and sales people, right? They're right. super smart. I've been in the industry for years. Couldn't get a leg in. Nobody trusts them. And it honestly, it didn't even matter that their sister company or their mother company had a huge brand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they didn't have enough credibility Absolutely. as themselves. In marketing, we talk all about how your brand builds your credibility. And so you have to have a consistent brand. You have to have a brand that speaks to your audience, that's relatable, and that that's so important. And I believe that very strongly. I'm I'm a marketer, so (laughs) hopefully I'm a little biased. But I also know that like, there's only so far you can get with a brand that's still unknown. Like you can be as consistent as possible and relatable as possible, but somehow you have to get people to hear about you. And I know that I I can probably speak for all marketers and say that like that third-party validation is critical. You know, like you go up and you apply for the awards and you get the online reviews and you do all of that stuff. But the missing layer then is the media. The missing layer is the media. And I firmly believe that people don't know how the media really works, how they source their stories. Seriously, I've talked to so many business leaders and entrepreneurs, and they just almost had the idea that the media is going around trolling for stories and they find them. But there's a whole subculture of PRs, 
right? That are the middleman in between the media and these particular companies. And some are good at it and some suck at it, right? I mean, I will raise my hand and admit publicly that I'm in that group of people who are like, this can't be so hard. We can just do it. We're just going to get, you know, buy the subscription tools, get the help or reporter out, like just start sending our press releases out and people will pick them up. That was a long time ago, but you know, it, <laughs> it failed miserably. I learned it's not just that, like, it's not just your story. It's the relationship because these reporters are so busy, right? Like they don't have time to weed through every random email that they're getting. Just like, I don't have every, any time to read through this, you know, slew of SDR emails that I get in a day. Right. It's the same thing. And so that back becomes the technical expertise. There really is like a format that you do for the headline and how many words you put in there and what kind of keywords you do. And, you know, you have three hooks to get a journalist to like read your email and they don't read it. They scan it. So you have to know how to write for that, right? Mm. And you also have to know the process by which they validate and consider credible your pitch you know, what channels they look at and the databases that they look at for your information. And many times they're, well, ever since 2016 and even now since the pandemic, they're too busy to do their job. So you have to help them out and do their job for them. Craft the questions, craft the storyline, like give like nine times out of 10, they'll use it these days. You know, the others, it might spark their interest to like ask the other questions. But if you have to make them think, Um, And I hate to say this, but if you have to make them think and they're so busy and overloaded, then they're not going to do it. And you also have to be persistent. It's a sales game. It's It's like relationships are key, but only if you bring them the good stories. And look, they might go, this is a great story. And they put it in their pending box. And some of them, we have this happen, come back to us three, six, you know, nine months, a year later. Okay, I'm ready to take up the story. But what if you didn't follow through enough? What if you didn't have enough touch points? What if you don't look at the metrics of, you know, who's opening it and who's reopening it, right? And what if you're not staying on track of like what they're writing about and the new news that comes up and, you know, have technology that helps you do that. So then you can contact them again. I mean, it's, I don't think people understand the depth of what it takes to market to the media and then all different kinds of media. It's not just one group. Mm -hmm. I mean. You just don't have one buyer for your company, right? Like for a tech company, you have sysadmins, right? You have the CEOs, you have different stakeholders. You market to them in different ways. Well, same thing with the media. There's mainstream media, there's industry press, there's influencers that are now bloggers, podcasters, there's network media, and they all have a different tweak and angle and they have a different way of looking at things, right? Radio. I mean, so yeah. It's quite a universe in itself. That's incredible. People build out their sales teams to handle that level of complexity. So could you imagine a sales team size at your company of PR people? Like that just, that sounds, that feels so overwhelming to me. I don't know that anyone's up for that. Yeah, I mean, some companies are. I mean, Richard Branson knows this very well. I mean, he creates a comms department like that. Yeah. He considers those the number one people for his marketing and sales, like they're the front lines. You look at things that he says and, you know, does in that aspect. It's few and far between. But if you really wanted to set up a good comms department, um, you would set it up like an SDR team for the whole different set of rules. Wow. My mind is (laughs) putting dollar signs 
Spinning, spinning, spinning. Yes. I mean, but the good thing is, is that you tackle the elephant one bite at a time, just like you do that in marketing, just like you do that in sales. So it's a, it's a scalable growth process for companies and even large companies that haven't done this before. Start with the low hanging fruit. You know, I've helped companies set up comms departments like that. And you take those initiatives and they eventually grow and become very, very efficient. That's very cool. Yeah, it's fun. Let's talk about the economy for a bit. We don't have that much okay. time left, but let's talk about the economy. Like a lot of people are still worried about how things are going this year. I'm in Canada. They're hiking interest rates again here. I don't know about the US if they're doing that again yet or not, but it's certainly been an issue. So how do companies prioritize and how should they prioritize in this in this kind of a climate? That's a really good question. I have done a lot of research on that lately. Every time there's speak of a recession or a loom or this or that, just even as a business owner, I'm always looking at what are the hacks for like continued growth. And I came across something that I hadn't really known before, but I did enough research back you know, decades to figure out that that was true, that the advertising industry is a great barometer for the economy. And when the advertising industry is booming, the lagging indicator is that it directly affects the GDP of the country. Isn't that interesting? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. The gross domestic product of the company. And I looked at that as a micro trend and I said, well, macro, take a look at it. What do companies realize when they increase their marketing, right? When companies they, increase their marketing, they increase their leads, they increase you know, the exposure of the leads, right. they grow. <laughs> yeah. And companies that are growing systematically look, okay, great. We've gotten to this plateau. We're going to increase our marketing and that's part of their growth plan, right? That's a macro trend for the entire economy. And I said, companies can actually be more in control of these factors that we've been so completely not in control of, right? Mm. The Fed changing the interest rates and this and that and the pandemic and so forth. Like, what are the things that we could control? And if you look at that particular trend, you could control a large degree of your expansion. And in times like this, the number one thing you should do is pour on your promotion and your outflow. Sometimes people know that intuitively. Other times people go, oh, we're going into a recession or this, we're going to cut back. But the problem is, is that when you do that and you economize so much, then you have no new blood coming in. You know, you have attrition from clients. You have no new, nothing new coming in to handle for that particular churn that happens, whatever that percentage is. And then guess what? You have nothing to economize on. Right. Even in a crisis, I even related it back to what we did in crisis management. What we do is when you bring in a crisis team, the crisis team sequesters off leadership, marketing, and sales and says, or on increase your marketing 10x. Increase it as much as you can. Increase your sales outflow as much as you can. We're going to be over here fixing the problem, but use that to get additional eyeballs and bandwidth and pe- like people coming in that don't care about the crisis, right? Because you will reach those. Don't care, don't know while we're fixing it. 
And that has always been a formula that's mathematically worked out well for a company. You could apply the same thing. Rates increasing, the economy tanking, going into a recession. Okay, I increase the GDP, I increase advertising, the GDP like increases. So let me do that on a micro scale with my company. How can I do that? And then it just becomes the channels of what's going to get me the best ROI and take a look at how many people are glued to the news today. Yeah. It's never been like this since the pandemic. I mean, that's just changed the ballgame, right? Media companies are growing. The media is growing. You know, it's growing exponentially. People are glued to the news. What's going to happen next? What's this? What's that? I mean, and it's, you're seeing it in all aspects of the news. And then you have a younger demographic that now pretty much won't do anything unless you're an influencer or you're, you have third-party credibility and now they're the buying public that's growing. Mm -hmm. So figure out your percentage of what you want as far as brand awareness, third-party credibility, and then also your marketing and beef those up. Great advice. So let's talk about how our listeners can get a hold of you. Oh, well, very easy. Jotopr.com, J-O-T-O-P-R.com. You can find me on LinkedIn, Carla Jo Helms, anti-PR. What am I, an anti-PR strategist and chief evangelist? That That is what you <laughs> yes. are. That's right. Or you can call me directly, 727-777-4618. Thank you. And if people had to take just one thing away from this podcast today, what do you want them to take away? You can be in control and guide public opinion for your business to be able to expand in a safer zone. You can do that. Companies don't know that. It's been my mission ever since being in crisis management, seeing the other side of the coin and realizing that if you can do something for the negative, right? If you can take public opinion and slander it for a company to keep them out of business, well, the corollary holds true. And you can proactively use public opinion to grow and expand and protect your company. And that's been my mission ever since I started in crisis management. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. That's a wrap, everyone. If you learned something today or laughed, go tell someone about this podcast and tell people to go disrupt their markets with a tidbit from this show. Thanks for listening to Disruption Interruption, where we transform lives, change customer behavior, alter economics, and never accept the status quo. Because we live in a highly litigious society with America being one of the top litigious countries in the world, here's our legal disclaimer. This advice is not intended to be a substitute for professional public relations or legal advice. Do not disregard seeking professional legal healthcare or financial advice or delay seeking professional PR or legal advice because of something you have heard here. Contact an attorney to obtain advice on any particular legal issue or problem. Use of this podcast or our website or any of its social media or email links. Do not create an agency client relationship between Joto PR and the user.